Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Confident Negotiator podcast. I'm Rob Cox, and with me today is the chair of the Institute for Supply Management's Manufacturing Business Survey Committee, Tim Fiore. Tim's released, uh, Tim's team released the January Manufacturing PMI this month. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. You bet. Good to be here. Now, we have a few questions about this month's PMI, so I'll dive right in. Uh, my first question for you, Tim, after so many months of contraction, there's a lot of noise about possible positive indicators for the manufacturing sector. What can we take away from the January PMI data relative to a possible expansion? And what else would you need to see to confirm the start of a manufacturing sector expansion? Well, okay. So a little bit of background, Rob. Uh, we, we've been running in a contra manufacturing contraction for about 15 months. Uh, that is the longest contraction that we've had in 20 years outside of the Great Recession. <clears throat> Our contractions usually last six to nine months. So this thing is already elongated beyond the normal. And, you know, and there's been nothing normal about the last three plus years around the pandemic. Surprises continue to come up, including what's happening here as we recover from the huge spike in demand several years ago, the massive amount of over-ordering the large amounts of inventory, total inventory in the entire channel from the shelf all the way back to the mine, and now the normalization to try to get back to a normal demand environment. So, so the January PMI, we did, oh, by the way, we do, we do a twice a year forecast for the economic community, manufacturing community, business community. We did a comprehensive forecast in December and we updated in May. And at the top level here, we said, you know, we're going to grow in 2024 about 5% on the revenue side. We're going to be more profitable. <clears throat> we've, we've let go about 2% of our employees in the last six months of last year. But by the time we get to the end of 2024, we will add them back. We undershot our, undershot our capital expense projections, but we're going to make up for that in 2024. We didn't expand our production capacity like we thought we would but we're gonna make up for that in 2024. And our operating rate is at one of the lowest levels that we've been at since uh, in the last six years anyway. Uh, and that's, that's the kind of the numbers that I'm looking at. So, so that's the backdrop for January. Uh, we released that forecast on January 15th. On January 14th, Chairman Powell got on TV and said, oh, we think we've capped out our rate increases. And in fact, you may see two to three decreases as 2024 proceeds. Well. So the forecast information I just gave you was without the benefit of Chairman Powell saying we're at the top. Now, you know, he said two things. We're at the top. And number one, number two, we're going to cut rates. Those are two separate things. So keep that in mind as we go into 2024. So along comes January. Uh, well, actually in December, our, uh, our PMI did pretty well. I mean, we've, I've been saying that since August of last year, we've been in the trough. And the reason I've been saying that is because the, what, what makes a PMI, manufacturing PMI, really unique is that it's highly cyclic and it's highly responsive, meaning it responds quickly and it moves significantly. In the last 15, 18 months, we've moved very slowly. You know, like we're moving less than one point every month. And that's just not the way it normally is in manufacturing. We never really got below 46.5. A really urgent situation is 43. You see a PMI down in the 43 range, get nervous because it means that the whole economy is coming. 
we never got near there. 46 is nowhere near 43. And I kept a real close eye on that 45 warning break line. So along comes January. And, you know, with the benefit of what, four weeks of Chairman Powell saying that we're at the top of the rate structure, the PMI panelists respond with a really good report. We came in at 49.1, I think the number was. Economists said we were going to come in at 47.3, something like that. Slightly better than the prior month of December 47.4. That 49.1 was a surprise to me. Uh, no doubt. I didn't. I went, when uh, Chairman Powell said we're at the top of the rate cycle, I figured by the time we hit February, March, you're probably going to see a PMI above 50. And I still feel that way. But I didn't feel that demand was going to really come back as strong as it did in January as it did. So that's that's part of your one of your other questions here. So the PMI comes out in, in January. I look at this thing from a demand and output and an input standpoint. I take all 10 of the sub-indexes and group them into one of those three. Let's start with demand. Demand includes new orders, obviously. It includes new export orders. It includes customer inventory. That's the amount of inventory that our panelists think their customers have of their product. And it includes backlog. So demand with a seasonal adjustment factor for January, which is not unusual, but this year it was a little bit stronger. We blew by 50. I think we came in at 52 and some change on demand. We hadn't seen that kind of a number in 14, 15 months. So that's really important. And all of a sudden demand is back. Now, some of the things that help that, the tailwinds are that everybody's been kind of waiting with, for prices to continue to come down, lead times to get back to historical levels. They've never come back to historical levels. Lead times are still elevated and prices are probably not gonna budge. So you get to the end of the year, 2023 was a cash flow metric year. If people bled the inventory pipeline dry so that they made sure they, they met, met their cash flow numbers. So now it's time to kind of re-up. That means customers, panelists, sub-suppliers. So we, it, it, the result of that is we had a significant amount of new orders come in earlier than what I had predicted. And, and you know, not totally out of the blue, but a big, big surprise. But okay, good. February, we're going to have some headwinds because the seasonal factor won't be as supportive. So we're going to have to offset that to maintain a 52, 53 rate in February. We'll see. But I think by the time we get to March, that number is going to be comfortably over 50 on a going forward basis. New export orders getting grimmer and grimmer, surprise, uh, surprisingly and disappointingly. Right now, the panelists are saying we're not going to really see any life out of Europe or China until the second half of the year. OK, fine. Customer inventory supported the new order number. It came in at the high end of way too low or at the low end of too low, whatever you wanna call it. The customers are really saying, I don't have enough of your product, ship it to me. That fits in very well with the story about more new orders. Because if customers don't have the inventory, they're gonna place more orders. It fits really well. That, that's why I think that, you know, although there's gonna be headwinds in February, we're still gonna see momentum on the new order number. If we bled everything so dry in 2023, there's not much of a choice but to re-up. And I think, you know, as liquidity becomes there's 12 months of measurement basis, many times four quarters of measurement basis. You're in the first quarter, first month, first quarter of those measurement points. You can afford to invest. And that's what people are doing because customers are upset that they don't have the lead times that they enjoyed before the pandemic. And there's no doubt we can get there, but you, you can always get a little bit of help with more inventory. And I think that's what's happening here. We got we got panelists and panelist customers saying, okay, time to invest in some inventory. I got the cash for it. 
let's go. We get the whole year to live through. We think it's going to be better in the second half. This is essentially a short-term investment. It's not a long-term investment, no problem. So new orders are good. It goes right into the PMI. New export orders were bad. does not go into the PMI. That's one of the five that does not go in. Mm -hmm. Customer inventory, way too low, really good for the future. Backlog, uh, still contracting at pretty much the same rate as December. I'm not worried about it now because backlog is not so much a leading indicator. It's more of a lagging indicator. Backlog will grow as production cannot meet the new order rate. New order rate increases. Backlog is going to grow because production can't output. So I'm not concerned about that. I'm more concerned about backlog as we come down the growth curve. I'm not as concerned about backlog as we go back up the growth curve. Okay, so demand is looking really good. The first time it's looked good in 14, 15 months. Honestly, I'm optimistic. I still think we're going to see a PMI over 50 in March, but you never know. February might bring another surprise. On the output side, output is production and employment. And it did what I had hoped it would do. Production was flat to December, which was flat to November. Now, production is almost like a surrogate for billings, as long as you're not taking that production and shoving it in revenue. I mean, in the inventory, this first quarter, the production may exceed billings because we're, you know, we've already said that we're probably going to restock the inventory bin. So it's, it's maybe not as accurate in February, March, and April, probably March and April more than January. But I think January, we didn't really feed in our own semi-finished products and finished goods into inventory. So, so I think you know that that's showing signs of life. We're now, I mean, the inventory, manufacturing inventory number generally runs 48 to 52. We've been in the low to mid 40s for a long time. And, you know, so we're now, we're breaking lots of new ground here. So it's now time to get that number back up in the high 40s. I think we came in at 46 or 46 and a half. I'm expecting probably by February, March, we're probably going to get to 49, maybe 51. And that's going to help the PMI index because that number does go into the index calculation. And then the last one is, uh, I I don't want to miss out on, let me come back to employment because that's probably the biggest story. But on the input side, the other one of the other ones that goes into the index is supplier deliveries. So the higher that number is on supplier deliveries, the slower suppliers are delivering. They've been delivering, I mean, yeah, the higher the number, the slower. So the lower the number, the faster. So they've been delivering fast for a long time. We're now, we got very close to the 50 point, which means they're delivering slower. So the month of uh, January was a stiffening of delivery velocity, which indicates that Suppliers are now getting a lot of orders. They've de-staffed somewhat. Uh, they don't have a ton of inventory. Therefore, they're struggling with meeting on-time uh, delivery commitments. And that, that's actually a good thing because it shows strain on the manufacturing economy. So let me jump back to output. The output, like I said, it includes production and it includes employment. Employment uh, is continuing to come down since May of last year. Our panelists pretty much reported that for everybody who was positive, there was one person who, for every one positive person, there's one person who's not so positive. That's been going on for four or five months, and it's led to de-staffing. Uh, like I said, when we asked the question in December about employment levels, our panel came back and said, we de-staffed over 2% in the last six months of 2023. Done very stealthily, not very, you know, you saw a couple of companies with 5,000, 10,000 people, but a 2% reduction in manufacturing headcount is a big reduction. So it happened, it happened throughout the year. It happened uh, very methodically to match what the panelists predicted would be the going forward demand 
based on uh, you know burning off all the backlog and what they consider to be uh, stable demand going into 2024. So so that's kind of happened here. We continue to de-staff. There's still in January we're still using layoffs and attrition to get the headcount down. Uh, it's not a lot of pain. There's a lot you know those people are leaving and going on to other jobs as you can see by the jolts numbers and the jobs reports. But but that really means that. That matches the fact that our panelists have said that they're going to be more profitable in 2024 than they were in 2023. The only way you can do that, if you're looking at increased wages and benefits, which we said will be about 5% in 2024, increased material prices, which we said would be about 3.1, 3.2% by, by May, and then stay that level through the end of the year, you know, how do you then increase your profit? Well, you got to get more productive, for sure. You got to get more productive. And you've got to get some better absorption, which means volume. So, so that's the PMI for January. A positive surprise. Demand appears to be coming back. If mm -hmm. it can be validated, you know, I validated it by two data points, customer inventory as well as new orders. If we can maintain that level in February, we're probably on a you know, good runway to grow back out of this trough and get back into an expansion zone of 51 to 54. I do not see us. In the next 12 months, getting into the high 50s, uh, I don't know what would do that. There'd have to be some major stimulus. You know, we're we're still we're in a restricted monetary policy. Still, the good thing is that Powell has said I'm not going to raise rates, so that gives us a lot of assurance that we're not going to get clobbered on our own interest expense, and that our customers are going to be much more willing to invest because they know they're at the top end of what's going to cost them for money, and then you know the reduction in rates will just be another tail one that'll help us out. But I think, you know, 2024 is shaping up into a good year. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Tim. It sounds like there's a lot to be cautiously optimistic about. So thank you for that. You mentioned as you were talking, some of the surprises that came out of the PMI report. Um, are there any other surprises that maybe you didn't mention that uh, that you think were, were most surprising from this recent report? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the fact that we're still de-staffing more than adding headcount now, we're at a 1 to 1.2 hire fire ratio, I call it. So for every one person commenting about hiring, there's 1.2 commenting about letting people go. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a little disappointed that we're still doing that in January and, and February. We had plenty of notice, I think, uh, to go ahead and do it. Although the companies that may be delayed might be in the better position if they can transition the next three or four months at lower than an, uh, 2024 annual output rates and maintain those people without losing too much money, then they don't have to worry about rehiring people either. But you know, I also think that this is a period where, well, you know, for, for those of your listeners who have been in business for quite some time, you know that when you hire 100 people, there's only 80 that you want to keep in the end. There's 20 that you need to find another home for, either, either in a new job or some other job. And I think there's a bit of that going on too, because for the last two and a half, three years, nobody let anybody go. They begged people who could breathe to show up at the, on the factory floor, let alone know what they were doing. So there's a bit of that cleanup going on now too. There's good cover to do that, given that demand has been off and that people have been digging into backlog. The uh, and, and I think everybody pretty much feels that you're not gonna see some dramatic, rec dramatic recovery here in demand. Because as I've been saying for a while now, there's a lot of benefits to a soft landing, and I'm, all, I'm, I'm almost calling it like a touch and go. It's not really a landing. It's a we're hovering over the runway. We touch the wheels, and now we're going to take off. It's not going to be a fighter jet takeoff with a lot of 
<sighs> straight up, it's going to be a big C5A cargo plane slowly going up. There's no other reason for it. I don't see a huge amount of stimulus coming in uh, in 2024. The next president might bring more stimulus. Uh, unfortunately, we're fighting all that stimulus that was brought in in 2021. 20, I think it was 2021 in March after the last election. That did not help anything. That absolutely fueled up inflation. And it really contributed to what had happened, compounded by then the Ukraine issue that, that impacted the energy markets. So, but outside of that, I don't know that that would be really responsible. I don't see the Fed getting, uh, you know, fully accommodative. I think they're very comfortable getting back into a neutral space, plus or minus a marginal uh, percent, so that they can operate. They're actually coming out and saying, "Hey, we need to get back to a three to four percent rate, so we've got ammo in our belt, uh, and you know, facing any other issues in the future." Running at a zero interest rate. You know, all they could do is buy bonds, that, and, and that's only part of their playbook. They really need to be managing interest rates. So, so they're going to settle in at 3 to 4% because that's going to be considered a neutral spot. But I don't see anything outside of a, a huge stimulus. We've already done the infrastructure, so there can't be another infrastructure bill. So you know, I don't know. That's the only thing I can see that would really juice demand, but that would not be a good thing because it will just overheat us. And then, So my point was, there's good things to a soft landing, i.e. a touch and go. There's good things to a hard landing too. People don't like to talk about the good things. The good things to a hard landing is, you know when you've hit the bottom because you feel it. You get hit in the head with a sledgehammer. You feel it, you've got to de-staff people. Prices have to come down. Everybody knows it. you got to lay off, you got to cut prices to maintain share. You got to let people go, you, you know it. In a soft landing, you don't really know it. So you're always going to err on the positive side. You don't want to overreact, but you tend to really underreact. And I think we've done a lot of that. So like in the case of the PMI, I wasn't really sure that we were in a trough until a couple, two, three months in. I think I finally called it in September. And the trough, we actually hit the trough, I think, in August or July because I didn't know. And then after two or three months of pretty much the same PMI at a 47, it's like, you know, I think we're in the trough here. I think this is it. I don't see us going any lower. I don't know why we would go any lower. So and the, the big question is, when are we going to climb out of this? I, I don't know. We're going to sit here for a while and see. These are the problems with soft landings. So, so then when Chairman Powell says, you know, even without the, the, the Fed saying we're going to cap out on interest rates, our panelists had come in and said 2024 is going to be better than 2023. They felt it anyway. They felt, okay. We're getting close to real demand now, and we've got replacement demand and things that people haven't been able to you know, replace stuff that wore out. That's going to continue to, to show up in our order books. Uh, you know, I, I think when that kind of when the, when the Fed finally said, "Hey, we're at the top," that was the indication that we're at the trough. We're, we can only go up from here, and I think that's kind of what 2024 looks like. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Tim. Let's shift over to the international supply chain. Now, you talked about exports, and uh, we're seeing strong domestic numbers, but poor export output, right? What does this mean for businesses that are relying on the international supply chains? How should they approach the next few months, and how might these numbers inform shifts in their strategies? And what do you see as their current biggest risk to their international supply chains? Yeah, so the good thing is that this is nothing new. We've been dealing with this now for two and a half years. I mean, there's actually two elements. When China shut itself down, 
not only did we we deal with a supply input shock that we couldn't get the products that we wanted, leading to massive backlogs at the docks. We also had a demand shutdown where you know about 15 to 18% of uh, US manufacturing GDP gets exported. So it's not a small amount. Uh, it can it can if it's stable, it's it's fine. You can you know you can plan for it. It's not 25%. Uh, you don't have to live by it. But if it's unstable, it becomes something that you have to manage. And for sure, we've had that issue, but we've been able to manage through it. So we're now we're now entering a growth spurt, in spite of the fact that the export markets are pretty much asleep. Um, and we've been going up and down for the last four or five months with the panelists on: Is China better or is it worse? Is Europe better or is it worse? And you know, the funny thing is, China is a pretty rapid economy. It can turn on a nickel and move quickly. Europe is not a rapid economy by design. Everything is in Europe is designed to slow everything down so that nobody overreacts. There's good, good to that. There's not so good to that. The good is, you know, it's not going to fall off the cliff tomorrow. It's going to maintain uh, where it's at. And that's kind of where we're at. It's not alive. It's not really growing. I think the growth profile is probably less than 1%. You don't really feel it. Okay, fine. China's a bit of a different story because you get the geopolitical risk going on too. The whole onshoring, reshoring, tariff issue, counter-tariffs that the U.S. doesn't talk about. There's a lot of stuff going on in the semiconductor chain that was probably driven by China responding to us shutting off um, the semiconductor manufacturing equipment. A lot of the stuff that we, uh, that we need in our everyday lives, a lot of those automotive chips and stuff were probably China-based. And you know, the, the, the world in China is still very opaque. You're not really sure what you're dealing with at any given point in time, unless you're there all the time. So I don't think the either market is going to help us much. I think the big challenge over the next three years, doesn't matter who gets elected, is where are we headed with China? I mean, if you're standing here, having done a lot of work in China myself several times and how difficult that is, and uh, I, I've been in, into China since 1993, uh, this is not going to get fixed in the near term. I just don't. There's ideological distance that that gap is not going to close quickly. And I think you saw that with a Trump plan that I think finally somebody called it for what it was, which nobody ever really wanted to because corporate America felt felt so good about China and the benefit. And the American consumer felt so good about China, Walmart, Target, uh, you know, the stuff that we buy in those places should have been probably twice as much as what we're paying today if it had been domestically made. But, you know, the reason the American public has been able to live with 2% or less wage increases is because pricing on a lot of the stuff that we consume every day was China-based and cheap. So, I, you know, President Trump, you know, stepped up and said, hey, there's more here than meets the eye. I'm not putting up with it. The tariffs, I think, were, you know, we ended up paying for those things. There may have been some sharing on the China side. The intellectual property was real. And, you know, the fact that they're using our tech to improve their own situation is not a big surprise and then joe biden comes in and doesn't change anything that kind of says everything right there to everybody that the, the america sees china as a, a a potential as a rival on the international stage it is and that's not going away there's no next election in china and so we're going to be dealing with this thing for quite some time so export markets you know the export markets have a big impact on the services side uh, a lot more of the service economy is exported than the manufacturing economy. But we're, we're I'm not as concerned, uh, you know, so since all this broke out, 
There's a lot of reshoring, onshoring. I'm concerned that we're going to have a short memory, and a lot of that's going to fall away because you reshore onshore, it's going to cost you more. Uh, with a nominal shipping cost, meaning a normal shipping cost, you know, let's call it three thousand, five, four thousand bucks a container out of China. If you're not paying ten thousand a container, three thousand a container is not a huge amount. And uh, and and who's going to pay the extra cost to onshore? in the US or even in Mexico? That's, that's a big question. And I think there's a lot of people moving away from it because it's, it's not, it's convenient to move away from it today. Excellent, well, thank you for that, Tim. I have to ask you about inflation. And inflation's a stubborn issue. What did you take away from the 7.7% higher prices index? Do you think it's the start of a new trend? Uh, no. Okay, so remember we measure month to month. So that's seven points. It's not 7%. It's probably more than 7%. It's a seven point climb. So, you know, broadly speaking, in December, we saw price reductions. And in the analysis that we did, we pretty much said that the energy markets are offsetting the price growth in the commodity markets, other commodities, the hard commodities, the steel, aluminum, the copper. We saw price growth occurring uh, again in uh, the third quarter end of the third quarter last year, fourth quarter for sure, we saw a stabilization of prices. Once we saw the spike with Ukraine, we saw prices start to come down. They pretty much stabilized. We're running at $1,000 a ton for short for uh, hot roll coil, a short ton. That's a lot. And the historical price for that, if you adjust for a nominal inflation at 2%, should be somewhere around 700 bucks. We're still paying 1000 So... Uh, and that's probably not going to budge much. It seems to be on the move now slowly, but it's not going to get down to 700. So my feeling is without the hard landing, we didn't get down to historical lows on the pure commodity markets. There's three different types of costs in, in the manufacturing world. There's pure commodity, there's partial commodity, and there's high labor content. So the pure commodity market will could adjust back to 2019 levels. Yeah, because that's driven by demand, uh, you know, and if demand falls off, hard landing, I could see us back at 500 bucks a short time. So, but we didn't have a hard landing. So why are steel companies gonna to do that? In the meantime, they're, they're probably pulling capacity out to maintain pricing structures if the volumes are down. It's not a huge amount of capacity coming out, but capacity nonetheless. And that's also keeping our lead times up. So as capacity comes out, lead times are not dropping. So. I think that, you know, we saw that in December. In January, we saw less of that. We saw less of the energy markets offsetting the, the commodity markets. So you saw the number get back above 50. I think 52, was it? 52, 53 prices index. Again, not huge. You know, 60, I'd be worried about it. Uh, but, but my analysis on this, and, and I, I was out in media after the, uh, the release, and I, I made the statement that, the single biggest issue for manufacturing in 2024 is the resurgence of price inflation. Because I, I can't really tell whether we really beat it. And as demand comes back, it's only going to fuel it. And if it gets fueled enough, the Fed's going to have to do something. And that, to me, is a risk. And right now we're sitting here saying Fed's not going to increase rates. Well, if we had a price index that continued to go out and hit 60 and stayed at 60 for three or four months, if you had the JOLTS report indicating that wages are growing too fast and employment levels are way too good, 
the Fed might just jump in and say, you know, I said I was, we're at the top, but we're not. Inflation's back. So I think the biggest issue for 2024 is a resurgence of an un unacceptably high inflation rate. And uh, Chairman Powell's already laid the groundwork that says, hey, we're going to have ups and downs. You know, I like the fact he made the statement that, hey, sometimes we have a, essentially a rogue uh, metric that we can't fully explain. I, I, I know exactly how that feels. I see that now and then. But I think the biggest issue in 2024 is we could see inflation come back, which could cause the Fed to react. And if they react, it's going to impact the whole demand profile. And this time, they might even throw us into a hard recession rather than a soft land. Because I, I, I don't know that they'd want to fumble twice. Excellent. Thank you for that. Okay. The other thing on inflation rates is that what the other thing I liked about Chairman Powell, he said, not only do you say we're at the top of the inflation uh, rate hikes, we don't expect to get back to the uh, 2% over time until 26. So that's the first time I actually saw that number. I may have missed it. But what he's saying is, hey, I don't need to get back to 2% uh, next quarter or the second half. I need to get back to 2% in about two years, which gives you a lot of runway. And it gets him out of the political cycle here, too. He's He's now, if things run okay, he's now not an issue in the election. And I think that's really important. Excellent. Thank you for that, Tim. You've been very generous with your time. May I ask you two more questions? Sure, go ahead. Excellent. Uh, what do you want our listeners to take away from this month's report? How should they expect manufacturing to fare over the next few months? And what major factors out there could have a significant impact? Okay, I think your listeners should be positive about 2024. I think they should really look at this thing from, there will not be a recession. I don't see it. I haven't seen it in a while. I think they should also realize there's going to be a slow grow out because we didn't have a hard landing. So you're not going to see great guns, 10% growth. You're going to see a slow, I mean, I can see us getting back to 1.7, 1.9 GDP. You know, if you remove fluctuations in imports, unusual fluctuations in imports that impact the number, if you remove unusual activities in, in inventory, which you might not be able to do for the first half, because I think there's going to be a bit of a rebuild in inventory here. I don't think there's going to be an overinvestment in inventory, but there will be a rebuild in inventory and that tends to, that disconnects the uh, GDP number from the true consumption number. You know, inventory is a way to, to jump GDP up when maybe people aren't really feeling it, could be sitting in somebody's storehouse. But I think people should be positive about 2024. They should feel that second half is gonna be better than the first half. They should probably go ahead and continue de-staffing up through March. And I think it'll be clearer by the time we hit March how sustainable at what rate the demand will be. I, I think they should not worry so much about backlog anymore. We're not going out of business. We're not gonna go into a hard recession. Uh, your listeners should go ahead and make the investments. They should make the investments to replace capital that they weren't able to replace over the last two to three years. <clears throat> Get that production capacity up. Um, and, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, invest in productivity improvements because you get headwinds on on wages and uh, benefits our panelists predict a five percent growth in wages and benefits in 2024 that's a huge amount that's big uh, you know, that, that's a, and that's that's baked in that's not 
you know, subject to somebody's decisions. It's baked in unless there's a hard recession. If there's a hard recession, you know, where the Fed steps in and jumps rates two points, you know, those wages and benefits are what they are for all of 2024. And I think we're still seeing pricing grow. Um, I, I don't know that it's going to be dramatic, but so somehow to improve your profitability, which everybody needs to do, you, you got to make up for it in productivity gains and, and volume. So, but I, I think the, the field should be clear, go do it. I, I don't think there's any huge unknown out there. The huge unknown at this point is the rate of expansion. It's not whether there will be one. Excellent. Thank you for that, Tim. And my final question for you, since uh, Red Bear has a, a, a large procurement audience, uh, specifically for procurement professionals, what's your advice for procurement professionals negotiating with suppliers now? And how might that advice change in the coming months, even into the second half of this year? Yeah, so so it's not just for procurement professionals, it's for the business professionals, of which mm -hmm. procurement professionals are one. It's for decision makers, material managers, general managers, guys running and, and uh, women running factories. What should you do? Jump in. I, you know, I don't think, don't be timid. Uh, there's plenty of time here. Don't overcommit. Uh, I think you should clean up the staff that you don't really need or don't really need slash want anymore. Do what you got to do and improve the quality of your labor content in the first six months of the year. Uh, you know, growth is not going to be dramatic, as I mentioned, but we're going to grow nonetheless. So uh, and if I was if I had supply people come to me saying they want a 10 percent price increase and they're still sitting with a 30 percent longer lead time than what we want. I said, OK, go ahead, cut the deal but only cut it for three to six months uh, and then re revisit it at that point in time. If you can't get anywhere near what you think you, you need to get through the year, then do a short-term deal. Because I think three months from now, we're going to have more information on this for sure. By the time we hit May, it's going to be a lot clearer about where we're headed. And I, and you know, you start compounding interest rate cuts and you know, the euphoria around that, who knows what kind of demand that will bring. And then, you know, Europe will wake back up. Uh, and it will have a draw. And, you know, I'm not sure about China. I'm not, China's going to have to purchase from us. They only purchase from us stuff that they have to. So that that's going to come back too. It's not, but it's not going to. Excellent. Tim, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for, for being on today's podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our uh, listeners before I let you go? No, I think, you know, we've had six expansion cycles in the 20 years uh, I've, I've been watching this. I haven't watched it for 20 years, but I keep a track of the last 20 years, six expansion cycles, of which two of those turn into recessions. Uh, the manufacturing PMI tends to lead everything and it's highly cyclic. So we're early and we move enough where you can see the difference. So uh, I, I'm an advocate for it. I've been living it now for, I'm in my seventh year. Uh, I, I really feel that it does provide that leading indicator information that market watchers need. There's only a couple of things that do that. Consumer confidence slash sentiment is another one, uh, although that that is transitory and it's 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 today, uh, and it's how people feel really. The Jolts report and the Jaws report are important, but I think what's happened is the dynamics have gotten so messed up that maybe they're not really reflecting everything. In other words. If I was still working a, a, a paid job every day at a, at a, at a whatever, manufacturer, if three months ago I wanted 10 people, I put 10 racks in. Two months later, I only want five. I don't know that I'd be canceling the other five yet. 
I'd let them out there. I wouldn't make any offers for 10 for sure. I'd make the offers for five, but I wouldn't cancel all of my 10 put-ons. A lot of that has happened over the last couple of years in some of these jobs reports. That's why you have two and a half and three times the openings compared to the people who are looking for work because companies have not canceled those outstanding reps. They haven't come to a day of reckoning. Now, I think you tend to clean that stuff out on a quarterly or an annual basis. I think you know the numbers will probably be better here in Q1, uh, which is good. But my point is, I think you know the other numbers have, have had some issues. We had some issues during the pandemic. The fact that it fell off so fast and it came back so fast, even with a, a monthly measurement, we couldn't pick it up. There was stuff happening in the fourth week of the month that was you know, foundational. And, I, and I'm reporting the prior three weeks of the month, which was totally different than what was happening that day. But that was very unusual. I think we've been very consistent. As long as you didn't have these huge Vs, we've been very consistent, much more than the other early indicators. So I'm an advocate for the PMI. Manufacturing PMI is fantastic. There's only one, it's the one that's output by ISM. We've been doing it since 1934. Uh, and in 1948, we converted it to numbers. So, uh, and the fact we've got history that goes all the way back to 48. And during the pandemic, we were breaking 1948 records, interestingly enough, on the rise and the fall in terms of rate of change per month. But uh, hey, it's a good time to be in business. I think the worst is behind us, as long as inflation doesn't rear its ugly head, as long as uh, the, the federal government doesn't come along with fiscal policy and throw all this juice in that we don't need. Uh, we're, we're, we're finally dealing with what happened the last time that happened. Uh, and it, it, it seems to me to be kind of behind it. We still got the debt that we got to work through, but I'm not that worried about the debt. Dollar's still strong. I think we're in a good position here. Watch the first six months. Second, second six months should be better than the first. The first six months will be better than the last six months. And I think that's that's kind of the summary of it all. That's excellent. Tim, thank you again so much for your time. Be sure to check out the ISM Manufacturing PMI Report every month. Uh, this has been the Confident Negotiator Podcast. We'll see you next time.